Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, interesting guest this week. She was a liberal commentator who worked on Fox News. And she talks about uh, her experience of doing that and also uh, how meditation did or did not help during that process. She's got a new book uh, about uh, how mean we are to each other and and ways to fix that. So we'll get to her in a second. Uh, First, though, uh, one item of business and then uh, some phone calls. The business item is that uh, if you like what we do, not here at the podcast, but at the 10% Happier app, we're actually hiring um, in our Boston office. Uh, so we're looking for a software developer, digital marketer, and uh, content producers. So you can apply at jobs.10percenthappier.com. All right. Uh, let's do some phone calls. Hi, Dan. Uh, my name is Percy. I'm uh, reading your second book, and I came across that section that when Jeff tells you that you should enjoy your practice, not only uh, do it because you have to, I, I I kind of related a lot with that because I I think I do as well. I do it mostly because I know it's good and I know for the benefits and I want to commit to myself, um, but not necessarily because I enjoy it. Uh, so I wanted to ask you if uh, what have you learned uh, since then and if it has helped enjoy more your practice other than just do it for the benefits. Thank you. Take care. Congratulations. Great question. We're so similar. I mean, you're absolutely right. So there's this point in in my second book, where um, which is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and it's a, this road trip I did across the country with um, this amazing meditation teacher, Jeff Warren. And uh, the goal of the trip was to help people who want to meditate but aren't meditating get over the hump and actually do it. And um, during uh, the 11 days in 18 states in this tin can uh, as we traveled across uh, America, this silly orange bus that we rented, uh, Jeff noticed something about my practice, which is that it had a kind of eat your vegetables, grit your teeth quality to it. Though I was doing it, as the caller said, uh, because I, I, I know it's good for me, but I was – I wasn't really enjoying it, and I, that was a humbling and uh, that was a, quite a humbling thing to have pointed out. I think he was absolutely right about that. Um, so th- this issue of enjoying meditation is a tricky one, though, because it's not if you <laughs> if you demand of yourself that you enjoy it, um, it's likely a- anytime you go into meditation. Um, planning or striving to feel a certain way, it almost guarantees that you won't feel that way. It's like a it's a classic, classical hindrance, right? So if you you, you demand of yourself that you feel relaxed or calm, it's because the goal of meditation really is to feel whatever you're feeling clearly, so that your feelings generally don't own you. That's what we're training. That's one of the many skills that we're training in meditation. But it is possible, as Jeff pointed out to to just notice that there are sensations about meditation that are I think he says uses the term just like a hair uh, north of neutral you know just like just into pleasant territory just the fact that you're feeling your breath coming in and going out can have some pleasant qualities to it you don't need to force it 
but you can tune into it. That that doesn't mean that you're never going to have unpleasant situations in your meditation where I just, in fact, right before I recorded this podcast introduction, I did some meditation in my office at here at ABC News, and I, I noticed that I was just kind of rushing and rushing, rushing, and thinking about this article that I just read. And so that was a little bit unpleasant, and the point isn't just to make anything that's unpleasant to force it to be pleasant. It's just to, to be open to the fact there are moments when um, – it is pleasant just to be kind of take yourself out of the traffic of daily life and to sit quietly for a few minutes. Um, and so that actually really just having that pointed out to me really changed things. And I, I'll, I'll just add one other thing that Jeff pointed out. I know I'm giving a long answer here, but I, there's a lot to say on this. Je- Jeff pointed out that that um, I think he, he said that in my case, a lot of my struggle is that I I was getting really angry at myself for getting distracted in meditation because I, of course, I tell everybody all the time, you know, getting distracted and starting again is meditation. If you sit and meditate and notice you're getting distracted and then consistently just return your attention to your breath or whatever it is you've chosen as your object of concentration, that is meditation. You're not doing it wrong. You're doing it right. Of course, I'm a huge hypocrite. I tell people that all the time. But in my own practice that I, 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 was, I was and to a certain extent still continue to beat myself up a lot for getting distracted. And Jeff helped me do this. What, what's, what struck me at first is a really goofy thing of kind of naming the various if, – if you look closely, there are, there are probably five or six inner programs inner voices that in, in that distract you the most you know for me it's like i have a planner i have anger i have uh somebody who's thinking about work i have uh somebody who's kind of um what are my other little inner voices somebody who's rushing somebody who wants stuff and so if you over time you can kind of like give these goofy little names to the to your inner neurotic programs and greet them with a nice little salutation that Jeff recommends, which is welcome to the party, which over time just infused a lot of sunlight into my practice. It, it, it turned it from being this kind of grim baton death march into something a little bit more cheerful where, OK, yeah, getting interrupted is inevitable and seeing that you've got these little uh, sort of inner voices, we've got the. In, this is not schizophrenia. I'm talking about. This is we have these little modes that we go into. You know, sometimes planning for the future, sometimes thinking about our career, sometimes uh, anger at w- whatever it is that might be uh, 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 provoking some sort of inner fury, and just to be like, oh, hey, I know you. What's going on? Welcome to the party. Then back to the breath. Instead of when you see that you've become distracted immediately um, reverting to self-flagellation. So anyway, those two tactics, one, just being open to the fact that there may be something pleasant about this act of meditation, and two, sort of identifying, naming, and greeting with welcome to the party, whatever whatever inner voice has popped up, uh, that really helped me enjoy my meditation practice a lot more. So thank you for... for pointing that out. Here's call number two. Hey, Dan, this is Cindy from Cleveland with a question. I recall hearing you on either your podcast or somewhere where you mentioned that at the end of every meditation, you have this little saying that you either say out loud or to yourself. And I believe the gist of it was you're opening up your heart to the world. And I remember the words really nice. And I think you mentioned you (laughs) thought it was a little corny, but you'd like to do it. 
And I would love to know what those words are because I've been trying to do that as a part of my practice at the end of my meditation, just sort of opening my heart to the world. And if you could repeat those words that you use to us, I would just love to hear them. Thanks, Dan, and just keep up all the great work. Love your podcast. Bye. Thank you. And let's just acknowledge we're, we're, we're firmly into cheesy, syrupy territory here. Uh, but, uh, and I say this as a, an avowed anti-sentimentalist, um, uh, there's science that suggests uh, this kind of training works in that it makes happier, healthier people and also that it it may, may make nicer people too. So, um, and by the way, being nice redounds to your benefit. Uh, so it, it can create a virtuous cycle. So, okay, so to answer your actual question. So there's a thing that I, there's a sort of a classical Buddhist phrase that I do say to myself at the beginning of every meditation, which is, may all beings everywhere be free from suffering, which is super aspirational and probably impossible. But I I like it because uh, it kind of pulls me out of my selfish concerns. Uh, and, and I just find that it creates better inner weather for whatever um, meditation experiences are about to ensue. And then at the end, this also comes from this is a classical move has been it's been done in meditation for circles for a long time. But it was first recommended to me by the aforementioned Jeff Warren, meditation teacher and co-author of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which is it's called a dedication of merit. And again, these are classical Buddhist terms. You can call it whatever you want, um, but I'm just using the, the the terms, the term of art, the terms of art. Um Dedication of merit, which is that uh, you basically say to yourself, you know, any anything positive that may have been generated in these two minutes of sitting, in these three minutes of sitting, or however long you've been sitting, I give it away to everybody. Or you might be say to all beings, which again is a little cheesy, but it is just kind of the way we Buddhists talk. Um, you, you can, you are free to language it however you want uh, to make it palatable, and yeah, so uh, I. I find I struggle a little bit with that that one because I've part of me, the selfish part of me, which is frankly most of me, wants to keep whatever <laughs> benefits have accrued as a consequence of doing the work I've just done. But actually, uh, I do find that uh, it's a useful exercise to try to generate the wish to you know just give away whatever whatever the benefits are. So there you go. I didn't issue this time my usual caveat, which is I'm not a meditation teacher. Uh, or a mental health expert. I just answer these questions to the best of my ability. But there it is. That is the caveat. Uh, always worth saying. Um, nobody makes me th- say that, but I just kind of feel like it's worth saying. Um, all right. Enough of me. Let's get it over to Sally Cohn, uh, who is um, a liberal political commentator. She's a community organizer. Uh, you may have seen her uh, in her years when she was a regular contributor at the Fox News Channel, which was kind of an interesting assignment, um, and she's going to talk about what that was like. She's also a meditator, uh, by her own description, kind of off and on. Um, and she's written a book called The Opposite of Hate, which is, um, as the title might suggest, um, a look at how we are talking to each other and feeling about each other in America these days in ways that maybe we can um, 
kind of shave the edges off of our toxic tribalism and political polarization. She's an interesting person to to be making these arguments. Uh, worth noting uh, that if you, if, if you followed her story of late, she, there's been some controversy over this book about uh, an alleged misquoting of another activist um, and podcast host. We'll get into that toward the end of the interview. Uh, but she has a lot of interesting things to say and a very interesting personal story. So here she is, Sally Cohn. Thank you for coming on. Thanks nice for to meet you. Me. Nice to meet you. Have we not actually met before? Have we? I don't know. I, don't know. I feel I, like we must have. If we have, I don't know. I'm a jerk. No, it, it could be me. Too. I don't remember either, but I'm just assuming it's some, you know, thing with past hors d'oeuvres. Or like just because we're both part of the media elite, you know? Yes. Thing. Yeah. When we were getting our m- media elite badges. <laughs> And secret walkie-talkies. In the smoke-filled back room. Yes. Yeah, there. It was so smoky, I don't recognize it. That was it. Uh, Well, nice to see you again. Uh, Let me start where I always... My my pleasure. Let me start where I always start, which is meditation. How how did you... How and why did you get interested in it? Um, We we could literally spend the entire time just talking about my experience with meditation retreats. Um, I have done... One and a half meditation retreats. Oh, okay, there's a story here. Yeah. Um, so, when you know, the timing here is is uh, the first one must have been around 2008 or 2009. No, it must have been 2009. And I went to Insight Meditation Society. Yeah. Well, so Central Massachusetts. Right. Um, and uh, I'll be darned if I remember exactly why I thought this was, you know, I had a a clouded head. I thought it would be a good idea to, uh, you know, I've always been a high strung person with a lot going on in my mind. I'd been introduced to meditation by a friend. Uh, I did that thing that I think people do where you get just, you just think, oh, this is it. I found it. Yeah. And you grab onto it so tightly yeah. and then you dive in way too deep. So I did like one meditation class in an afternoon and, you know, that night signed up for a week-long silent meditation retreat. Wow. I know. Um, and So and by the time you actually arrived at Insight Meditation Society, you had been meditating for how long? Um, I'm going to go with like a handful of weeks. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, okay. you have to sign up for the class yes. and then it's, you yes. know, you have to wait a little while. So, um, but I'd, uh, uh, you know, I'd done what like all, you know, good bougie liberals do. I, I bought a cushion um, you know, I, I, incense? I, I, I think I probably had some incense. I do not like patchouli. Um, Little bowl, uh, I think I, bowl. I bought some, like, I'd never really been into the, ath- it wasn't even called athleisure wear then, but you know, I had to, yes, I'm sure I had a bowl, whatever. I, I, I was, I was kitted up. Uh, and so I went to the silent med- meditation retreat. It was a women's retreat at Insight Meditation Society. Um, and it was one of the hardest and most rewarding things I've ever done. Hands down. So you made it through that one. I made it through that That's one. That's not the half one. That's not the half one. I made it through that one. It, um, I, I mean, I remember so many moments from it and just the uh, idea of learning to slow down, um, to be present in your own experience with others and in the world around you. Um, I remember noticing how I would have all these opinions and impressions about things, even in the silence, how my mind was trying to make noise in the silence. And then, but especially what I remember is um, one of the teachers saying during one of the Dharma talks, uh, 
talking about learning to make friends with her mind. She talked about how her mind had for so long in her life been her enemy and that she could cultivate a relationship with her mind through meditation and presence and loving kindness and that she could, that her mind could be her friend. And that, um, I mean, it had to have been one of the, you know, 10 most impactful moments in my life. What, say a little bit more about what was going on for you that, that your hair got lit on fire so easily after that first meditation class. Um, you know, I was at a point, uh, professionally where I was going through some transitions. So I'd been a community organizer for 15 years. I loved my work. I traveled around the country. What does that mean? Barack Obama was a community organizer and he took a little guff for it. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, well, in my case, uh, I, I worked for a bunch of national organizations, uh, that were trying to help people in their communities make change on a range of issues. So it was, uh, LGBTQ rights, criminal justice policy, immigration reform, healthcare policy. And I would travel around uh, and go into local communities and work with state level groups that were trying to make a difference, help them support them in what they were trying to do and help them strategize and take action and try to win. And I, I love my work. I love what I did. Uh, it, it, you know, I, and I still, my mind and my mind, I'm still an organizer uh, in 2009, um, I ended up uh, leaving organizing through sort of a twist of two fates. Um, one was that I was uh, at a conference. Someone saw me speaking and they said afterwards, they came up to me and said, we have to get you on television. And I said, no, we do not. <laughs> like, I don't. That's not me. Like, that's not what I do. I'm an organizer. We're behind the scenes people. We put, you know, we try to get the people who are actually affected by the issues, the leaders and communities, get them in the spotlight and on the stage. And I turned to walk away and she actually grabbed my arm. She said, no, you're going to do this. You're going to be good at it. Um, her name was Geraldine Laybourne. She was the first. Oh, yeah, Jerry Laybourne. Yeah, she was the first woman to run a network. She ran Nickelodeon Oxygen. and then she and Oprah started Oxygen and she did not take no for an answer. And so that began this sort of transition for me, um, or at least initially I thought, OK, I'm going to be an organizer with some new skills and I'll bring them back to organizing. And then I eventually realized I liked, I liked being in the media. I liked uh, having the opportunity to communicate and convey ideas and energize and engage people. And it was a lot like organizing. It was just more people uh, on a bigger stage. Um, But also I was starting to feel disenchanted with the work that I'd done for so much of my career and the, and the field that I've been a part of, this was in the early days of the Obama administration watching what um, that so many of the movements and the social movements and organizations that I've been a part of that pushed for uh, that moment, including his election, then in the early days of the Obama administration kind of disengaged. They this is partly the Obama administration's uh, deliberate strategy to disengage and just sort of demobilize the left. But the left also kind of saying, all right. This is cool. He's got it. He's going to do the right thing. We don't need to push. We don't need to agitate anymore. We're not going to make trouble. We're going to just kind of sit and wait for the right thing to happen. It didn't. Uh, and it was later in the in the second term when the left actually realized it had to push and create trouble and, and create the space for change to happen that it was able to. Um, 
but I was at the time feeling very frustrated. And so in those in the space between those things, I was really um, trying to figure myself out and what my role was going to be in the world. And that's why meditate. You thought meditation would help you sort of cut through the noise a little bit. Yes. Had you gone to work for Fox at this point? No. So this this was before that. Okay. It was. And and you you said it was so powerful to hear somebody say that they they'd been at war with their own mind. Uh, the meditation teacher said yeah. that on yeah. the retreat. So in what in what ways had you been at war with your own mind? Oh, Dan. I mean, I'm a you know neurotic East Coast Jew uh, with a you know penchant for uh, being hard on myself. I mean, we have we don't have enough time to talk about all the ways in which I've been at war with my own mind. Uh, but the idea that what it, what it was was the idea that that wasn't inevitable, that it didn't have to be that way, that my mind didn't have to be, uh, you know, this sort of independent, uncontrolled entity that would wreak whatever havoc it saw, you know, it saw due course to do. And I would just have to then I as somehow an independent entity would have to respond and relate and, you know, to that reality, the idea that actually there was something that I could do uh, to quiet my own mind, to be more present, uh, to be more um, at peace. That was a very, especially for me at that time. I mean, what was I in 2009? I was, you know, in my early, no, in my late 20s. That was a really powerful revelation for me. Has your life been an uninterrupted chain of mindfulness since that first (laughs) period? As yours? Oh uh, yes, yes, it has. Yes, I'm enlightened. Really? Oh yes. my gosh! Wow! I'm you, so see, you don't see all the uh, barfing uh, uniforms, uh, unicorns around me. <laughs> oh, that's what that's that aura. was. Your aura uh-huh. of barfing unicorns. Uh-huh. Wow! Um, has someone already made that into like a at least, if not a an, an a image, gif? at least a, yeah. <laughs> a gif? Right? That should be a gif of your head. I, it uh, should. Hello, internet, dear yes. internet. Please make that um, <laughs> with the actively barfing unicorns. Um, no, you know, I left that retreat uh, and went home and was for a while, for some time, very dedicated to uh, a meditation practice every day, 10, 15 minutes a day. Um, and to the idea, I became, it also helped instill in me an idea that helped, how to say this, it organized my. It it made sense of my understanding of the world and helped to start to frame my place in it uh, in terms of loving kindness practice and and, or meta practice that that for me was the other. I'm not unrelated to the point about your mind being your friend is then can your mind and yourself also then be practice loving kindness to others and to the world that helped frame what I had seen myself as doing what I'd been trying to do in the world through organizing work and activism work and social justice work. And it helped me to, um, uh, I, I think it, it, in a way, maybe I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but it led to what I would end up becoming more and more cognizant of as time went on. Well, let me just define terms for folks. I think sure, yeah. regular listeners to this podcast will know, will understand everything you just said, but if you're new, the, within the school of Buddhism that you that uh, 
IMS, Insight Meditation Society, uh, uh, comes out of um, within that school. There, they basically teach the principally they teach these two uh, complementary practices. One is called mindfulness or insight, where you sit, watch your breath. When you get distracted, start again. And that gives you sort of more clarity about your mental processes so that you're not so owned by them. And then the other is called metta, M-E-T-T-A, sometimes called loving kindness meditation, where you systematically envision a series of beings starting usually classically with yourself, progress to a dear friend, Mm -hmm. benefactor, neutral people, difficult people, then all people, all Mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. And you... Send them good vibes. You silently repeat these phrases like "may you be happy," "may you be healthy," et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's science to suggest both of these are really healthy um, yes. uh, um, practices. But you, you, it sounds to me like you, you, the the latter really spoke to you in some way. Well, I mean, I feel like you should be clarifying this because, like, the former, the, just mindfulness in general was to me a helpful was was a was a revelation right and even still when i catch my myself thinking too fast or speaking too fast or moving too fast i can go back to catch my you know i can catch myself go back to my breath try to slow down try to observe try to be present and not just pushing and putting into the world but taking in and and noticing um so in that sense it it continues to be i mean it's I, I don't um, – I think I'm – does anyone think they're a good meditator? I'm wary when people say they're yeah, a good meditator. Yeah, I'm quite sure I'm a crappy meditator. Well, I think the point actually is to be crappy. I, I honestly believe the point is to be crappy because – Well, then what, I'm really good. Then you are really good <laughs> because seeing that you're distracted, seeing that you're yes. distracted is the point of meditation. Yes. Because then you're seeing how crazy you are and therefore the crazy your craziness has less – ownership over you and has less purchase of your actions and so that is the point point. it's right. very hard for type a i too am an east coast neurotic jew and so it's very hard for people like us or really frankly for anybody to to wrap their head around that but yes. it is the thing to know well and and you know to me it ended up organizing just a whole um universe of thought around cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, just this idea that rather than um, that when there are thoughts or ideas that are uh, unhealthy is even the wrong word here, um, that you might consider to be negative or destructive, whether about yourself, whether about those around you, whether about just news in the world that you that is sad, unfortunate, painful, negative. Um, that, you know, I think I'd been raised, I suppose many of us are raised uh, consciously or unconsciously to push those thoughts away. And that never worked. Mm. That never worked. Well, it doesn't work. It's whack-a-mole. Right. Um, And so what I found so potent in a way was the idea that you that 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 they become less powerful in a way by accepting them that they don't that it's the struggle to push them away that you're 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 somehow feeding those ideas whether they're about yourself or about others or about the world and that in a way by accepting there's a letting go mm-hmm. that to me was um that 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 remains mm-hmm. when i when i really think about 
that concept. It's, that's transformative. Yeah, it's really powerful. You describe it well. Now, so, it led to the problem I had at the second retreat. Okay, well, that's where I was, that's where I was going to go. And how, how long after the first retreat was the second one? Oh, uh, about two years later. Okay, and in and, that period, you were me- meditating with some... I mean, you know, semi-sort of regularity of, you know, uh, it, tape, let's call it tapering regularity. Gotcha. Right? You gotcha. know, it sort of began with that intensity of anyone who's left something like that and feels, you know, wholly transformed. I think I probably also was going to be vegan and learn to float. I don't know. I was very convinced I was on the path to enlightenment. I went to other workshops. I, um, and when I went back to do a second retreat, same insight meditation retreat, week long, um, I it it was uh, it was like nails on a chalkboard. And in particular, I was really struggling with. Uh, the concept of acceptance and not accepting well i it was that it was you know what the teacher called my my koan am i is that the right word right so, so a koan is, koan is a zen riddle yes that the mind the, the rational mind cannot solve uh and 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 in trying to solve an unsolvable uh riddle like what was the face you had before you were born or what's the sound of one hand clapping uh, the rational mind gets so tied up in knots that it leads to some sort of release uh, and some sort of enlightenment experience is how I, I yes, understand that, it. I mean, yes. that's, you said it better than I could have. Um, no, uh, but so maybe. this question of, I mean, like riddle through this with me, but this this issue of how you uh, you accept something while also seeing the need for it to change. Mm-hmm. Whether in yourself, that in and of itself was hard enough for me, right? So, for instance, I am going to accept that I have, you know, a neurotic mind or I'm going to accept that I have a mind that is prone to seeing the negative and not the positive. And yet at the same time, I don't want to accept that. I don't want to allow it to be. I don't, right? And you try to accept yourself for who you are and also want yourself to be better, right? So it's like I'm going to accept – I remember I would go – uh, I would skip out during the second retreat on some of the seated meditations and I would go for a walk and occasionally I would try to run and I would I would be tied up in knots of like, well, I want to accept my physical fitness the way it is for who I am and not beat myself up that I can't run more than a mile. And at the same time, what the hell's wrong with you? You can't run more for a mile. You should be working harder at this. And like, you know, and that that I couldn't I couldn't reconcile. And of course, then it, for me, it then extrapolated to the world, right? Where you're supposed to, the, the teaching is to accept the pain, suffering, injustice, brutality, inequality, and also want it to change, want it to be better. And I could, I, I somehow, I got tied up in knots. And in the teachings and in the one-on-one sessions, the answer was just that what the teacher said to me was that's, that's your koan. That's your riddle. That's your puzzle to puzzle with. And that was unacceptable to me. And I just tied myself up in perpetual knots for about three days. And then I called home and got my partner to call them and say that 
they had they were both sick. I, this is horrible that I'm admitting to this. <laughs> and what's wrong Wait, with me that I couldn't just call and say that call and say that she and my daughter were sick so that I'd have to come home? What's wrong with me that I just couldn't like I could have just oh my gosh, Dan, I could have just gotten in the car and left, right? Like I had the keys. It's classic. They call there's a oh term, man. terminology I can't for I just admitted to that. I actually see. Look, I think it's hilarious. Thank is, you. Is what I think. Um, it's yogi mind. There's an expression, yogi mind, which is that. So when you go on retreat, the name for the person who does a retreat is a yogi, a yes, meditator. Yes, yeah. Meditator. Yogi mind means you just get because all of the usual stimuli are taken away from you. You're on retreat. It's, there's no talking. There's no television unless you're in your room cheating on your phone. Uh, you know the the level of fixation and obsession can ramp way up yes and uh you that's it sounds to me i want to i don't want to present myself as more of an expert than i am but that sounds to me as diagnose away okay yeah Uh, well to my semi-trained uh mind uh that seems to me like a classic case of yogi ma here's another example um that's sharon salzberg that who founded uh, insight meditation society she often tells the story of Somebody went to the front office one day in the middle of a retreat and said that the planes flying overhead were really bothering him. <laughs> Could they call the airport and get them rerouted? <laughs> so that's that that to me sounds like what was going on with you. But but I actually just want to address your the 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 issue you were having. Mm. Cuz to my mind, I don't know if I can answer this in a cogent way, but to my mind it's not a koan. Huh? I actually think it's like um, maybe a misunderstanding of acceptance. Okay. Maybe. So I'll try to see if I can say what I mean and maybe I'll succeed. Maybe I won't. And the reason why I'm I'm very careful about not – about saying out loud – some of my listeners criticize me for this gently. I often say out loud, you know, I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not an expert. I've written some books on it. But like I I really have only been doing this for like nine years and – the people who are genuinely experts have been doing it way longer and much more intensively than I have done. So I just want to be careful. Caveats noted. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, so just because you accept the way things are right now does not mean that you need to accept them forever. So it is true that we have massive inequality on many levels in the United States of America right now. To not accept that that is the truth right now would probably not be constructive because you'd be fighting against reality. But to then say that I want to change it is completely fine from a Buddhist standpoint. Uh, um, But you are wanting to change it from a standpoint of a little bit more wisdom because you're not so caught up in anger over it. You're Mm. just – you see things as they are. Hopefully you see it with some wisdom and compassion that's a result of – a whole soup of causes and conditions, uh, and you decide that you want to do your best without making yourself crazy or than you need to be uh, to change it. So, for example, you can't you have you have trouble running more than a mile. I don't think self hatred is the answer. So, accepting right now, I can't run more than a mile. Right, this is my body as uh, as it is right now. Uh, I need to have self compassion about that fact. But I also want to do the best that I possibly can to get in the best shape I can, given my genes. All right. First of all, you said you're Jewish? 
half Jewish. I'd like to question that if you do not believe self hatred is the answer. I just, <laughs> I just um, flag for foul over here. Um, second, second point. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Maybe it is about the definition of acceptance. Um, and at the same time, and this is also where it rubs up against my uh, sort of training as an organizer. And by the way, where I think there is a difference. I mean, obviously, I've, I've you know, I'm against hate. I've written a book. I'm against hate. But there's a difference to me between anger and hate. And I have always seen anger to be a constructive thing that, in fact, if we accept the injustice and equality around us, if we accept institutional racism and, and sexual harassment, sexual assault and environmental degradation, and if we accept it, right? And you're right. It's about the definition. But even in the moment, uh, it's not about recognizing the reality of it. But to me, the acceptance, at least the way it's often talked about in uh, the sort of meditative or spiritual practice of Buddhism is is a sort of at peace with. And I don't want to be at peace with. And so it's that combined with, honestly, you're right, the sort of, um, uh, <laughs> why are we having such an intimate and revealing conversation? That's Dan, the point of this the is, podcast, My Sally. mom, uh-oh, hi, mom. My mom always said that she thought she raised me right because I wasn't too self-confident and too complacent. And that that yearning sense that I needed to be better, right? That 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 insecurity is in a way what makes change. And it's that same, I think the same thing about the world, even though I can like, I can kind of step back and see that that's maybe not the healthiest psyche, but you want to also look at the world and not be complacent uh, or, and I guess that's how I am defining acceptance in that sense of like at peace uh, with the radical injustices yeah that's my my understanding of the buddhist concept of acceptance and i actually agree with everything you said about the sort of uh, my father had an expression which is the price of security is insecurity so i do think a certain amount of uh discontent with what's happening makes sense Mm. but it's it's the certain amount where you get into the interesting area so, like, for example, you talked about anger. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, anger is a no-no from a Buddhist standpoint. Like, certain – we evolved for certain uh, rapid responses, anger, fear, and things like that, that I think make sense in acute situations yeah. but are probably not an abiding strategy. Mm. So, for example, when we talk about social – issues of social justice um, – uh, I don't think the proposition is that you should be at peace with uh, inequity. Uh, I think the proposition is that the best way, the best long-term solution for at- for attacking these problems is not from a place of anger, which can wear down your effectiveness and resiliency, but instead compassion, which mm. is a desire to help the people on the right. wrong end of the current uh, uh, system. So I mean, that that's that's essentially where i would land no well and that that speaks in a way to why ultimately i came to find meta practice or loving kindness practice to be more um out when i think about the world more constructive i came to understand a sort of uh you know when i when i sit down and think i'm going to meditate i still 
am engaged in a mindfulness practice. Uh, but uh, when I am working through feelings of outward pain, frustration, anger, injustice, um, I, that 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 meta that idea of sending loving kindness to the injustice and pain in the world and and thinking about what does it mean to then act through that to not just sit on a cushion or sit in a chair and practice loving kindness but to actually embody loving kindness what would it look like as a political act what does it mean to do it on social media what does it mean to do it on television what does that look like um that that's where I see a lot of utility. But you're not applying it to yourself. Jeez, Dan, get off my back, you man. You just said, I'm just, <laughs> just listening to what you said. Well, no, no. I mean, you're supposed to start with yourself. Yeah. So I do. Yeah. I do. I do. But do you actually? I mean, well, geez, Dan. I mean, it's, you know, these are <laughs> lifelong journeys. Gosh. <laughs> Okay, okay. I'll, I'll let you off the hook. Are, I, I mean, think the question's a, been answered. Listen, really. it's, you know, uh, it's, it's a lifelong journey. It is. It's a, I it's, agree with that. No... I agree with that. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. I want to get to the book, but first, at what point in this in this chronology did you go to fox because i think that a lot of people are going to be interested in that well so i left the uh, meditation retreat and i just drove straight to fox news i was like screw this loving kindness thing i'm going to fox um uh boy it happened before the second retreat so somewhere in the middle there uh you know as i when i was in my organizing world and i I left or i was 
tr- thinking about a transition because of my frustrations with, uh, you know, the sort of complacency of the left at that time. Um, and this sort of someone said, hey, let's get you on television. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And then they said, no, you're going to do it. And I said, great, okay, fine. I'll be a better organizer. I'll be an organizer who has these skills. I can bring these back to my work. Um, Eventually, when I realized I enjoyed doing it, my community that I came from, the activist field liked me doing it, was supportive. Uh, I did what baby pundits do. You know, I did Fox and MSNBC and CNN. Uh, And... um, and then one day I was uh, standing outside of Fox News. I saw this guy. He looked. I thought he looked like Roger Ailes. I waved at him. He waved at me. The next day he uh, called me into his office. We had a meeting. He told me I had pretty eyes. Interesting. Five times in five minutes. <clears throat> I think I got off pretty easy, let's be honest. And uh, uh, especially knowing what I know now, none of which I knew when I was at Fox, I definitely got off easy. And... Um, that was it. I worked at Fox News for two and a half years as a uh, as a lefty lesbian pundit, as one does. How was that for you? And and was your meditation practice did it exist in that period? And if it did, was it useful? Um, That's a m- multi headed question, multi part <laughs> question. So sorry, well, it was I, a multi part role, Dan. No, I think it's uh, safe to. S- First of all, it was weird. That was it was weird. Um, uh, I think it's safe to say my meditation practice, in fact, that was part of the period of tapering. And in fact, when I went back to that sort of half retreat, it was in the tumult of that era. So, no, it did not. Um, no, I was not uh, engaged in active practice then. And, and and probably for a lot of reasons should have been. Obviously, always should have been. Um, one of the things that happened uh is that well for okay so two things happened first of all i started getting hate mail i'd never gotten hate mail in my life never had the experience of strangers finding my email address or i was you know twitter was relatively new i never had that experience people just random people who i didn't know finding me and writing the meanest things i'd ever been called in my life that was part one of the experience and part two was um you know i went to go work at fox where all these people, I had these ideas of them as, you know, I, I thought they hated, they had hateful ideas, right? But I thought the people on air, behind the scenes, even the viewers, not just that they had these hateful views, but they, they would be 100% in every way, shape, and form hateful. They would just be personally nasty to me directly about my views, about me as a person, just that was what I expected. And so when I went there... And got to know people, worked with people. Um, I first realized, oh, they're not, they're not completely one hundred percent hateful. Yes, they still say and, and do a lot of things I find hateful. Still do, uh, but I was maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised that they would be nice to me personally. They would care about my family. They would care about my career. We've sometimes found things we agreed on, um, and then I also realized, oh, wait a second. I hate them. Like, I came into this setting thinking, here I am against hate. My whole career, I've been working against these, you know, these values. And and here I am hating them. I have all these stereotypes and generalizations and have imagined them to be the very worst possible thing. And that those two things together, getting hate mail and then starting to actually wrestle with my own hate, 
um, led me to want to understand hate more broadly as a phenomenon, why we do it and how we stop it. So that brings us to the new book, The Opposite of Hate. So how? T- 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 tell me what the thesis is and, and what you learned. Well, you know, the, uh, the idea for me was to look at why do we do this, right? And not, look, I draw a pretty broad definition of hate in the book. So it's not just incivility online or bullying, uh, but also terrorism, neo-Nazis, genocide. They're not the same, obviously. But when we look at the root, right, the kids who are getting bullied in school are often the same kids, more likely to be bullied in school, more likely to get hate online, are queer folks, folks of color, poor folks, folks with disabilities, the same people we're more likely to discriminate against in society. So they're not the same thing, but they have a similar root. In the history in the past and the habits in the present of demeaning and dehumanizing certain people, especially certain groups of people, because of their identity or their ideas. And the same token, explicit hate and implicit hate aren't the same thing, but they are also connected. So to an example, um, what struck me was that, look, there's obviously when somebody marches down the street carrying a tiki torch, chanting about how we should kill all gay people, we're going to agree that's hate. That is overt, obvious hate. What about when they march down the when they when they walk down the street? They're not carrying the tiki torch, and they're not chanting "We should kill gay people," but they just think it. Is that also hate? I think it is. Mm-hmm. And what if they think gay people are inferior, but they don't? Not only do they not say it, they aren't even aware they think it. But it plays out in their interactions, in the way they run their businesses, and the people they vote for, etc. Is that also hate? See, I think it's all hate. It's all that habit we have based on our history of demeaning and dehumanizing certain people, especially certain groups of people, because of their identity and their ideas. And the fact is, what I came to understand is the fact that we all do it. We don't all do it the same degree. We don't all do it just as bad, but we all do it. And we have a, we ha- we have a tendency to always point fingers and blame the other people and shake our fingers at them and... and, and, and be angry at them and attack them, and we don't take any responsibility for our own piece of the puzzle. And so what I wanted to do with this book was surface my own history, show what I hope is a constructive way for us all to take ownership, whether it's talking about how I was a bully as a kid, uh, talking about my own unconscious bias, and that we can all take responsibility for our piece of this, because we need to fix hate in all of us and in the institutions and policies and politics and culture that we're all a part of. I want to talk about the fixes in a second, but what did you learn about yourself in the process? Um, You know, it has made me more compassionate. I mean, that learning about... Except for not towards yourself, apparently. Leave me alone, Dan Harris! (laughs) Or me. No, it, I guess it's made me more compassionate toward myself. I'm mean, again, but listen, there's like a bajillion other people out there. Let's be more compassionate toward them first. Um, I, you know, there's like this you know one light. You know, there's this one light in your just, studio that is yeah. just like hitting me like we're in an interrogation, and I'm just like, 
Okay. All I think right. you're projecting. Because um, there's no lights hitting. Oh, you're right, actually. Yeah, that light Those is light... totally yeah. hitting me. That one right. See? It wasn't. Watch. He's going to fix it. All right. There we go. Oh, so much better. Okay, now I feel literally and figuratively less up. under the spotlight. I'm a short man, but I was able to reach Thanks. the ceiling. Thanks, um, Dan Harris. Um, but 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 yeah, but but just from a classical uh, Buddhist standpoint, actually, the reason why in loving kindness practice you start with yourself is, and this is a cliche, as they say in the airline safety instructions, instructions, yes. you got to put your own mask on first before yes. assisting others. So actually, the whole idea of starting with the billions of other mm. people is. Bass backwards. Well, thank you. I yeah. In the sense, and this is the sense in which I feel like we look. We do tend to have this. They started at philosophy of hate, right? And what I learned was one of the things I learned is that most people don't believe themselves to be hateful. Most people don't wake up in the morning thinking they're hateful. In fact, there's I, both from people I talk to and research. You can look at even overt extreme hate groups that we would just say, well, those are obviously hateful. You know, neo-Nazis, terrorists, right-wing hate organizations, that the members of those groups don't even see themselves as hateful. I talked to, uh, by and large, I talked to a terrorist negotiator for the army who worked in Afghanistan. She said most people see their motivations, believe their motivations to be good. Mm. And in fact, people, when they join hate organizations, it's not the hate, the ideology that draws them in. It's actually they're searching for belonging. This is true in terrorist recruitment. This is true in gang recruitment. People are searching for belonging. And the term the researchers use is that they slide into the ideology. They deepen their bonds with the group through deepening their attachment to hate. People actually then bonding through hate. But that we don't see ourselves that way. So when I called up my trolls, some of these people who've written things that I just can't say on the radio, like just horrible things about me. I can't even imagine. I figured it was it was obvious when I asked them. I didn't even ask them, do you hate me? I figured they did. So I asked, why do you hate me? First question, why do you hate me? And they said to a T, oh, I don't hate you. But they saw me as hateful. They thought my behavior is hateful. Things I'd said on air, ways I'd behaved, things I'd tweeted, etc. Now, I didn't think I was, be- right? But it was this sort of, you started it philosophy of hate uh, that actually stems to psychological principles where we tend to uh, hold others accountable and see their bad behavior, not just as bad acts, but actually inherent to who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do something bad. I make a mis- I made a mistake. You do something bad. You're a bad person. Well, it's true. Yes. I mean, I think it's true. Like if you're a Trump supporter right now, you see uh, missteps as mistakes. Uh, if you're a Trump detractor you see it as a reflection of his irredeemable character same with clinton right correct uh it was just different people reaching different conclusions um at that time so, so and I, I i met bill clinton uh during the impeachment um but, uh, but true right. also but also Hillary. true during the yes, campaign exactly yes of course um yeah no, i think it's a really interesting phenomenon well and we do it you know again First of all, what it led me to do was want to take some ownership for myself and my side, right? So, and this comes from my days at Fox News and just learning how to have conversations with people who you disagree with, where, you know, we know this from cognitive neuroscience. The minute you have an argument, the rational thinking parts of the brain shut down and the fight or flight parts turn on and we pick a side and we just keep having an argument. And... When you attack people and try to point out what they've done wrong as a starting point, you're not having a conversation. You're picking a fight. And so for me, being able to start with what I've done wrong, 
is a very helpful, instructive way into a conversation that I'm coming to folks and saying, look, I'm not talking about your unconscious racial bias. I'm talking about my unconscious racial bias. And turns out that's something we all share. And here's the evidence and here's the whatever. But I'm not absolving myself. I'm not on high. I'm not wagging my finger at you saying, oh, you're clinging to your guns and religion or you're a basket of deplorables. Right. I'm I'm sort of putting myself as the first offering on the table of imperfection that applies to all of us. So for me, that became a um, uh, I learned I learned a lot about my own imperfections and I learned a lot about how we all see ourselves in the best possible light. Um, And what would it mean if we saw others in the best possible light? Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy and um, was one of my professors in law school, he says, no one is the worst thing they've ever done. Mm. And through the process of writing this book, I spent a lot of time thinking about what would it mean to not just say that not just believe it, but do it. What would it look like to believe that people and act as though people are not the worst thing they've ever done or the worst thing they've even said or even the worst thing they've ever thought? To believe people are redeemable and to give people, to give people the opportunity to be their best selves. Because right now, I think we tend to condemn the people who are not on our side to be the worst version of themselves that we see them to be. So what is the fix here? I mean, I had a guest on recently, Ezra Klein, who's mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about political polarization, and I was asking him about fixes, and he was saying he didn't really think there were any. Uh, what do you think? He doesn't. Yeah, I didn't. Li- I didn't hear him say that, but that's sad. That's unfortunate. I, I, I maybe I'm not remembering it correctly. Do you think it can be fixed? I haven't looked closely enough. Uh, where he and I ended up coming down was. He views the world as a structuralist. In other words, so he looks at the the whole system. And in terms of tribalization, polarization, he doesn't see, at least right now, I think he's off on a leave to write this book about it. And maybe he'll see something as he writes the book. But um, he didn't see any big structuralist fix. But he did see my point when I said there are things individuals can do to be better players within the systems, um, like loving kindness meditation, uh, trying to get clear on your own biases, uh, Mm -hmm. practicing generosity, gratitude. There are all sorts of things you can do as an individual. He wasn't sure there were big systemic fixes. Well, that's interesting. I hope hope Ezra, I'm quoting you correctly. Well, if I am not, I apologize. Yeah. Ping us. Mm -hmm. Um, See, I think both. It has to be both. Um, And I look. I am a realist, but a professional optimist. So I wouldn't be engaged in the project of trying to make our society and the world a better place if I didn't think it was possible. And I believe it's possible because in spite of the immense history of hate in our country and in our world, let's be clear, we are a country that in innumerable ways was founded on hate, acts of hate, in spite of our aspirations to the contrary, which have always been there, but have never been even close to imperfectly realized, that we have nonetheless aspired to be better tomorrow than we were in the past and have at moments imperfectly 
insufficiently, but still achieved that progress. And that's why I'm a progressive, because I believe in progress, because I believe that people in policies and institutions and systems can change. And it's true. We do not address hate. We do not address the deep inequalities and injustices in our country and in the world. We don't address them without institutional change, right? We have to look at the ways in which, for instance, our schools today are have always been segregated and today are more segregated than they were two decades ago. Our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our prisons, those are not the result of natural outcomes. Those are the result of policy and inequality ossified into culture and systems and institutions. And so we need to change that. And at the same time, we also know that the way we make change is when individuals demand it, when individuals in control of, in positions of power in institutions and businesses and systems, and those of us who pull the levers in elections and choose the media we consume, et cetera, et cetera. That's also how those big things change is when we, the people, change them. So talk specifics. Um, what do you think can be done on an individual level and or structural level to address all of the issues you've been describing here about hatred embedded in our society? So part of the key piece is, is taking some, I, I think, is taking some responsibility for your piece where you start. So, yes, in the book, I get into how we actually need to have. So I, by the way, the opposite of hate in the book is not love. You do not have to love in my book. You do not have to love people to stop hating them. You're welcome. You don't have to like them. That's okay. You just have to understand how in spite of our differences and our disagreements, by the way, which I think are incredibly important to who we are as people and as a country and as a world, Right? We shouldn't be papering over them or pretending they don't exist or holding hands in the middle and singing kumbaya. I'm not in favor of that. We should have our differences and disagreements. We should even celebrate them. And and we can express what we believe and we can stand up for what we believe in without stomping on other people. Isn't that an answer to the koan from your retreat? I mean, in a way it is, right? But it didn't feel like it was the answer at the time. That's why I think this search, that's why this search to me worked, right? I mean, I think that's why I connect, that's why I connect the two in sort of the long arc of my own life. So, yes, I think we need, so in my, in my articulation, we need connection policies, right? Just like failure or sort of, you know, the hateful policies got us to this place in terms of, uh, you know, housing discrimination, education discrimination, uh, more deeply institutions of slavery and inequity in voting, et cetera. We need to fix policies and institutions and culture and media. And and at the individual level, we need to do more to connect. So, for instance, we know that when kids go to racially integrated elementary schools and kindergartens, they develop less unconscious racial bias to begin with. We know that. They get it later, but they initially develop less. We know that when teenagers and college students participate in racially integrated after-school programs and intramural activities, they lower their unconscious racial bias. And yet, we are in so many ways more divided than ever. We are in a situation where most strong Hillary supporters don't know any strong Trump supporters, and most strong Trump supporters don't know any strong Hillary supporters. 53% of Americans 
say they don't know anyone who's Muslim. Three quarters of white Americans say they don't have any non-white friends. And Brene Brown says it is hard to hate up close. It's not the answer to everything. It doesn't fix the history. It doesn't fix the habits. It doesn't fix the structures of hate. But it gets us closer individually to a solution, especially when we as individuals stop pointing the finger at them and their hate and take responsibility for our own piece of the problem. I I think it's all right, all true. But is anybody doing anything about this? When I look around, are the – is, is anybody legislating against this, if that's even possible? And is anybody in the culture making a move to build these bridges? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, one of the – in addition to, in the book, talking to ex-neo-Nazis and uh, former terrorists and people who participated in genocide who had remarkably and against all odds left entire lives of hate behind, and showing how this is possible at at every level imaginable – there are institutional and community level solutions that are happening. So, for instance, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, where the proliferation of multiple school districts in Omaha, Nebraska, popped up after Brown versus Board of Education when our public schools were being integrated. There was white flight out of the multiracial inner city to little pockets of new districts to the point where they actually, in some cases, created what are basically all white public school districts that exist as little autonomous fiefdoms uh, separate from the more that was once diverse uh, city school district and uh, to fight off the the quote-unquote threat of integration. And what the school district did, what the Omaha school district did, was through some legal maneuvers that made other school districts come to the table, they created a larger unified public school district. That shares resources because, of course, this isn't this is about race and about classes. When you have public school, public school funding that's apportioned by property taxes, then poor communities are going to have poor schools. Rich communities are going to have good schools that that's not fair. Right. Because that then means that opportunity for kids is based on the wealth of the parents they have in the communities they live in. And that continues to perpetuate inequality. So the school districts came together, created a unified school district, share resources, and also allow kids to go to schools in the other communities, um, in effect, reintegrating those schools. In uh, Nashville, a group of evangelical ministers were frustrated because they were hearing, Christian ministers were frustrated, they were hearing their congregants say some virulently anti-Islam things. And they wanted to respond. They knew instinctively it didn't seem right. It felt hateful, but they didn't know what to do. So they went to the local Muslim community organization in Nashville and said, help us. Help us understand so we can respond. And so there was a retreat. Imams and Muslim faith leaders and these evangelical Christian community leaders and other Christian leaders went together on a retreat, learned about each other's faiths, traditions, talked about each other's texts, also just hung out, broke bread together, talked about movies got to just know each other. And now there's a program where the congregants of the different uh, in faith institutions will now the members from the evangelical churches are going to mosque with members of the mosque and then they break bread together. And the members of the mosque are going and experiencing worship services in the Christian congregations and then breaking bread together. And that 
Again, that's a piece. That's a piece, but it makes. That's the kind of thing that starts to make a difference. Ironically, in the course of, and uh, you were actually the one who told me about this, but uh, in the course of your uh, book being published, you there has been some turbulence. Uh, there's uh, an African-American uh, podcaster mm-hmm. come out and said that you misquoted her in the book. Can you just tell us from your angle, from your side, what happened here? Um, so, uh, I mean, not to so. Who uh, I mean, not to so. Mm-hmm, who hosts uh, Call Your Girlfriend podcast uh, felt as though uh, it was her experience that a quote that I'd used in my book she did not recall saying. Uh, now, you know, I listen. I've tried to clarify. And that, what the was facts the quote? Of um, oh boy, I mean, should I actually like? I hang on, it. I've got. I don't want to. I don't want to just summarize it. Let's let me let, let's. Uh, I mean, I don't. Well, can I just say? Hang on a second here. I can read the quote. I've got the quote here. She. <laughs> uh, I've tried to clarify the facts of how the quote was obtained. That it was on the record. She consented to be quoted. I took notes visibly and contemporaneously. I've since produced those notes. Uh, so I've tried to clarify the facts. What's also clear, first of all, is that I quoted someone in a way that she did not. Clearly, it's it's in retrospect is now clear did not want to be quoted. Uh, I wish I had gone back and reconfirmed that she was okay with me using the quote in the book. Uh, I also am now clear that as a white woman, I did not see how her quote uh, potentially played into racial stereotypes uh, and exposed her to vulnerability. Now, I'll be clear. This went on for some time privately. She raised these concerns to me privately, and I did what I could to make amends, uh, including taking her name out of future editions of the book and, per her request, uh, apologizing publicly. Because I did not want the quote that she is hurt by uh, and doesn't want out there to be out there any further. So I'm going to continue to stand by that, Uh, that I don't want to amplify or air. Look, I, I, I amplify further a quote that she obviously wishes was not in my book. Okay, so we don't have to go talk yeah. about. Therefore, you, you, I, I think, I think you're basically saying you don't want to go say the quote because it would be salt in the wound, perhaps. Thank but you. it roughly was along the lines of she was talking about what it's like to be an African American woman in public debates where somebody says something offensive to her. Yes, uh, and it was a pretty incendiary thing. Yes, she is quoted as saying, although she says she didn't say it. Correct. But your uh, contention is that not only did she say it, but that you told her you were taking notes at the time and that you were going to quote her. And But she says that's not true. So is that the, the rub? Correct. Um, that's correct. And still, I have and will continue to uh, apologize both for my uh, blind spots in not having seen the dynamics uh, that that quote could play into, and having not reconfirmed that she was okay with me using it I, again, I, I uh, listen. All I can all I can do is continue to. That obviously wasn't my intent. My intent wasn't to have this uh, to do harm or to to be insensitive. Um, but you know, intent isn't the same thing as impact. That was the impact I had. Uh, and all I can all I can do is apologize and try to learn and do better in the future interesting headline in mother jones which is a, a liberal 
maga- uh, magazine, website, whatever, how Sally Cohn's The Opposite of Hate became a referendum on white privilege. Uh, do you do you agree with that? Is that a fair characterization? Well, I don't think so, Dan. But, I mean, look, they... <sighs> I wrote a book in which, if we can, if we can step back from that, uh, I wrote a book in which I have tried to be fairly transparent about the many things I have done and thought and felt that were wrong, hurtful, problematic. Um, uh, you know, if I were going to write it again, I'd put this in. The, I'd put this in it. As an example, uh, that I am that, you know, what I hope and this is certainly my hope with this book is that and 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 I, I would love if the way this conversation were unfolding could model that uh, is that we can have. Look, nobody likes to get, you know, called out. Nobody likes to have to learn a lesson and nobody really, you really don't want to have to learn one in public, but. Sometimes that's the only way we get better and change and grow. Now, I'm a fan of call, not calling people out, but calling people in, creating opportunities where people feel like they can learn, grow, and do better, as opposed to being voted off the island. Uh, and that certainly is what I've tried to model in my writing and my work, that we give people the opportunity to be their best selves. We recognize that when you're trying to do things that are hard, change, grow, uh, uh, find ways to overcome and overrule and override the injustices in the past that have been baked into our institutions, our culture, our societies, and our minds, that that's never going to be a straight line. It's never going to be a smooth path, much though we might like it to be. And can we be generous and graceful with each other do you think do you think there's a chance for a rapprochement with, between you and ms so uh i event i i i hope so yeah i hope so um let's end on on let's end on a more upbeat well, note I, um okay <laughs> yeah go how ahead. optimistic are you that that the wounds that are so evident in our national psyche and discourse right now can in any reasonable period of time go some distance toward being healed, improved. Oh, it depends on the day, Dan. Um, I guess we're not going to end on a I more, think, no, no, I, I it's mean... It's okay, no, you no, should tell I, the truth. I, well, I, I mean, in all fairness... I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm. Um, I think that uh, that we are, uh, so stepping back, sort of speaking broadly, I think we are in a time as a country on all sides um, where we are uh, interested in attacking and condemning and amping up the finger pointing and the blame who did it worst and first uh, and not in creating opportunities and paths for solutions 
and for positive ways forward. And that comes from a lot of pain. It comes from a lot of frustration. It comes from a lot of anguish on all sides. It comes from a lot of people, certainly on the left, feeling very powerless in this moment, um, that I think what's happening to our country is very uh, – it, it, it feels – it feels hopeless um, to a lot of people who'd thought, like myself, who'd thought we were imperfectly, but nonetheless, you know, bending toward justice. And uh, and to see this as to, to, to still believe in our better angels, to still believe in the possibility of change, to still believe that people can change. You know, I have to every day remind myself of the people I know, not just the institutions and the policies that in my lifetime have changed and in the history of our country have changed, but the people I know who've changed and that that's possible because it feels, we've, it feels so entrenched and so ugly right now. Um, so that's why, you know, both the stories in the book, uh, you know, to, to know people in this day and age when we are seeing more neo-Nazis, more hate groups, to meet and know and connect with and hear the stories and share the stories of people who have left those lives of hate, who have turned away from that kind of extreme hate, who have turned toward kindness and compassion, uh, is, is, is I hold on to that. I hope we can all hold on to that. Um, yeah. Good. Uh, good, good place to, to close. Thank you very much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Sorry Thanks, about Dan. shining that light in your eyes. No, <laughs> literally or metaphorically? Uh, only the literal <laughs> part. I will, uh, I, I will send also loving kindness to, uh, our lighting, lighting director. director. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Great Thanks, job. Dan. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now... I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.